0: There have been many trials proving surgical intervention does indeed reduce the risk of progressive glaucoma damage for our patients. These include treatment versus no treatment studies, as well as studies that compare different types of treatment. In this episode, I talked with Steve Getty from the University of Miami's Baskin Palmer Eye Institute about lessons learned of these clinical trials. We begin by discussing the importance of randomized clinical trials as the highest evidence-based medicine to compare treatments. Studies that we discuss include the fluorouracil filtering study group, tube versus Trab, or TVT, primary tube versus Trab, or PTVT, Ahmed-Barvelt comparison, ABC, and the Ahmed versus Barvelt study. Some of the concepts and lessons learned include reducing IOP prior to surgery to lessen the risk of choroidal hemorrhage from a sudden IOP drop, trabeculectomy offering titratable control that MIGS procedures do not, that it's harder to get a 20% reduction in IOP to count as a success if the IOP is lower than 25 pre-op, that onlet valves have better safety record but barbell better pressure lowering, and that anti-metabolites have been shown to not be effective for tube-shot surgery. There's quite a bit of information packed into this episode, so I suggest checking the program notes for links to some relevant articles and presentations related to the topic. I'm Rob Schertzer, a Vancouver Canada-based glaucoma specialist, podcaster, and health IT expert, and we're talking about glaucoma. Steve Getty, welcome to the show.
1: Glad to be here, thanks. Well.
0: So, uh, once, you know, it used to be that we had no proof that treating glaucoma did anything. <laughs> then uh, suddenly we started to get clinical trials, which have been able to guide us over the years. Yeah. But it's actually starting to get confusing. There's so many different clinical trials. So, I just wanted could just sort of run through the different trials that you can think of off the top of your head and and uh, what we should be looking for.
1: You're uh, you're exactly right. I think um, it was the Eddie and Billings report that came out. um, And I forget to what governmental um, uh, kind of commission this report was directed, but it suggested there was no high level of evidence that treatment uh, for glaucoma was beneficial, and I think you're right, that was a stimulus that mobilized a number of randomized clinical trials, um, including uh, the collaborative normal tension glaucoma study, the accurate hypertension treatment study, the early manifest glaucoma trial, the collaborative initial glaucoma treatment study, and then there were a number of other ones. I just gave a lecture at uh, the American Glaucoma Society kind of addressing glaucoma surgical trials Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about some of those. Um, And um, I agree with you, it's it's oftentimes hard to take information from a randomized clinical trial and extract lessons that you can, or information that you can translate into the care of your patients. So, um,
0: and, and then it gets even more challenging when uh, two or three years later, the three-year data comes out. It turns out what you were doing was wrong, and did that make, does that undo everything you just did? <laughs> so.
1: yeah, good point. Good point. So, you know, uh, randomized clinical trials have felt to be the highest level of evidence-based medicine, um, at least to compare... Treatments um, because the goal of uh, a randomized clinical trial is to kind of create two balanced treatment groups that differ only with respect to the treatment they're get getting, uh, and that's what the randomization process is, is supposed to do, and usually successful. But right. this was a landmark trial that really ushered in the modern era of antifibrotics as adjuncts to filtering surgery. Um, so it enrolled patients. That had uh, prior ocular surgery, either cataract surgery or failed filtering surgery, and randomized them at the time to just standard trabeculectomy or trabeculectomy with subconjunctival injections of 5FU. And it was really a quite high dosage of 5FU. It was twice daily dosage uh, of subconjunctival 5FU for a week, followed by daily dosage uh, for an additional week. Uh, But that study showed that. Uh, the rate of surgical success of trabeculectomy using kind of predetermined success and failure criteria was significantly higher when 5FU was used in this kind of higher risk group for filtration failure. Um, you know, demonstrating definitely the benefit of antifibrotics as adjuncts to trabeculectomy to improve surgical success rates. Unfortunately, it also was shown to increase the risk of complications. And some of the complications included kind of corneal epithelial toxicity. And again, this was a pretty high dosage of 5-FU. So there were a lot of uh, non-healing corneal epithelial defects, um, but there were also higher uh, rates of wound leaks and bleb leaks. Um, uh, So 5-FU and I think uh, a lot of these results have been extrapolated to mitomycin C, which uh, is the antifibrotic agent that we now routinely use. Right. I, remember,
0: I Just, just a step back a bit, I remember soon after the 5-FU study group report came out, I was a resident,
1: mm-hmm. probably around the same, mm-hmm.
0: same age. So I remember that me as a young, keen, future glaucoma uh, person. I got to be the one giving all these injections to these patients for two weeks, including weekends and following the patients having to patch them when their cornea is sloughed off.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think we still use 5-FU occasionally. I don't know if you do, you know, it's routinely mitomycin C, but kind of an elderly white patient where you still want to use an antifibrotic agent, but maybe not as potent as mitomycin C. I'll sometimes use intraoperative 5-FU. and then give a few subconjunctival injections post but it's nothing like twice a day for a week and and once a day. So
0: I still do five a few for blood needling
1: yep. yeah. patients.
0: And for those other patients, the older patients within a conjunctiva, I use sort of homeopathic doses of mitomycin. So I'll just sort of da- dab the, <laughs> the sclera with the mitomycin for thirty seconds or a minute instead of three minutes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know in talking, but that's
0: not stuff written from any studies. So.
1: Yeah, well, you know, there's not a lot of evidence-based guidance about dosage of mitomycin C, and even di- dosage of 5-FU, uh, quite honestly, and I think it is largely an- anecdotal. You know, it's interesting talking to Rich Parrish, who's, who was, uh, again, the principal investigator for this landmark trial, and, and he believes the most important single piece of information that came from that study... Was the recognition that having a really high preoperative intraocular pressure and having a big drop in intraocular pressure, and obviously those two things are highly correlated. The people right. that have super high pressure to begin with are the ones are the ones that have big drops in intraocular pressure. But that was highly correlated with the risk of suprachoridal hemorrhage. And prior to that study, uh, High preoperative pressure, big drops in, in pressure postoperatively, had not been previously described as a risk factor for suprachoroidal hemorrhage. And one, I think, take-home message from that study is if you can do anything to avoid, you know, yeah, th- IV those, eczema,
0: IV mannitol pre-operative.
1: so high, IV mannitol right before surgery. Sometimes I'll start dimox even for like a, a week or something before not. With any expectation, I'm going to continue that medication long term, or it's going to be adequate to provide, you know, pressure reduction to negate the need for surgery. But if I can get the pressure a bit better before stepping in the operating room, just to ameliorate that risk of supracardial hemorrhage, that's beneficial. There's been a lot of discussion at this meeting about all the alternative surgical approaches, including tube shunts and newer MIGS procedures, but one. I think underappreciated advantage of trabeculectivate is titratability. So in these situations where you have a really high, high preoperative intraocular pressure, you can purposely put in extra flap sutures, purposely leave the pressure a little bit on the high side in the early postoperative period with plans to do sequential laser suture lysis to kind of titrate down the pressure. And that helps to, you know, prevent big drops in pressure, which um, as discussed, increase the risk of supracoidal hemorrhage. So that's kind of translating the results of a clinical trial into uh, into practice, uh, I, I guess.
0: Exactly. I guess we can move to other surgical ones like the crab versus tube and the...
1: Yeah, versus I, I, but, um, there are a lot out there. Um, uh, you, t- tube versus trabeculectomy study, and, uh, and and maybe we can even throw in primary tube versus trabeculectomy study because they're two studies that are pretty similar in design, although uh, recruiting different types of patients. Um, both of those randomized cl- clinical trials were designed to compare the safety and efficacy of tube shun surgery and trabeculectomy with mitomycin C. In the TVT study, uh, patients uh, were g- recruited that had prior cataract surgery or failed filtering surgery, not a dissimilar patient group than what was studied in the four years, so filtering surgery study, but in the PTVT study was patients that had no prior incisional ocular surgery. So it was, you know, what's the best glaucoma procedure as an initial uh, surgical treatment. So you um, in both cases, uh, the 350 Baerveldt implant was used to, for patients that were randomized to the tube group and those that had a trabeculactomy did have adjunctive mitomycin C, although a lower dosage in the PTVT compared to the TVT study. I think 0.4 milligrams for two minutes in PTVT and 0.4 milligrams per milliliter for four minutes in, in TVT. And that was a consensus kind of opinion by investigators, not any right, evidence-based yeah. guidance. Exactly, on that, so.
0: because it it could be that after three minutes you would achieve maps maximum absorption, anyways.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was just uh, actually um, surveying investigators what was the optimal dosage in TVT. Actually, we did a survey of the AGS membership more broadly, and that's how we came up with uh, 0.4 for two minutes for for pTVT, but. Turned out in the TVT study, um, trabeculectomy actually provided better pressure reduction in the early period after surgery for three months. But at six months and thereafter, there was no difference in mean pressures between the two groups. Um, trabeculectomy required less adjunctive medical therapy at least initially, um, but the need for medical therapy kind of gradually increased over the course of the study in the trabeculectomy group and stayed pretty steady in the tube group. So at three years and thereafter, there was actually no difference in mean uh, number of medications. But using kaplan Meyer survival analysis, the probability of failure was higher with trabeculectomy surgery compared to tube shunt surgery. And that was true throughout five years follow-up in in the TBT study. In contrast, in the PTBT study, actually, tube shunt surgery had a higher failure rate. That difference was significant at one year, although after three years, there's still a higher failure rate with tube shunt surgery compared to trabeculectomy, but the difference wasn't statistically significant anymore. Um, if you looked at mean pressures, they were, they were significantly lower with trabeculectomy at all the different time points, uh, as was the adjunctive use of glaucoma medication. So lower pressures with less medical therapy really suggesting a you know, greater pressure reduction, greater efficacy uh, with trabeculectomy. In both studies, I think the complication rates were pretty comparable you know, early post-operative comp- complications actually were more common in the trabeculectomy group in both TBT and PTBT. Now, most of those complications were, you know, showering in the anterior chamber, choroidal effusions, things that just got better right. on their own. Right. So those are just
0: normal things you expect going into the surgery
1: pretty kinda, much. Kind of normal things, <laughs> exactly, but not what we would call serious complications. And, and we actually define serious complications is, is those complications requiring a reoperation to m- manage the complication or and or producing loss of two or more lines of stone visual acuity. And so those are, those are more serious complications, I guess. And, and the rate of serious complications was um, similar in the TVT study. Actually, it was a little bit higher in the trabeculectomy group compared to the tube group in PTVT, that difference was significant at a year, but at three years wasn't quite statistically significant anymore. So, is,
0: is there enough evidence from the TBT and the PTVT to guide us in terms of when to do a travel, when to do a tube?
1: So, I think um, just overall, the TVT study would suggest, you know, based on a higher success rate of tube shun surgery, that in eyes that have had prior ocular surgery. Like cataract surgery or failed trabeculectomy surgery, that tube may be a preferred option. Whereas in the PTBT, it showed that as an initial surgery, probably trabeculectomy is a, f- a favored approach. And I think that's pretty consistent with the conventional wisdom and current practice pattern. So I think. Actually, even before the TVT published its results, there was already some shifts in practice patterns, kind of away from trabeculectomy towards tube shunt surgery. Um, but I think, um, you know, PTVT actually provides good support about the value of trabeculectomy as an initial glaucoma surgical procedure. Sure. So, there's
0: still some people who would say, you know, don't blow your to do a trab first, mm-hmm. uh, and save the tissue if you need, need it later.
1: Yep, yeah. That was that was something we thought about actually in TVT um, because one of the criteria for failure was a reoperation for glaucoma. And we wondered whether the threshold for reoperating might be higher if somebody was randomized to the tube group versus a patient randomized to the trabeculectomy group. Generally, you know, if somebody feels a trap, you're gonna put in a tube. But if they fail tube shunt surgery, what are you going to do? You're talking about probably putting in a second tube or doing a psychodestructive procedure. So, one of the concern, current concerns among the investigators is there might have been a different threshold for reoperating since right. that uh, decision was left uh, to the investigator. So, we, we did explore for what, what we call re- reoperation bias. Um, and how do you do that? Well, you can look at the intraocular pressure level just prior to glaucoma surgery um, and if it was you know much higher in the tube group compared to the trabeculectomy group that would have suggested maybe there was a reoperation bias not to operate that did not turn out to be the case in either TVT or PTBT the other thing that we looked at is there were some people that failed because they didn't get a 20% reduction in pressure or the pressure was above 21 but they never had a glaucoma reoperation for whatever the reason, and those were also considered failures. And you can look at the intraocular pressures of those to that group, and compare it in tubes to traps, and it wasn't any different. So we felt comfortable there wasn't actually a reoperation bias right. for either in, in either the TVT or PTVT but studies.
0: It still wasn't harder to get the 20% reduction in patients whose pre-op pressures were already low.
1: So that's a really great question, and um, it's something we specifically looked at. Um, and uh, so the answer is yes, and, um, and, it, and it w- we kind of um, kind of tripped into this information uh, first in, in PTVT. And the way we tripped into it is we did a risk factor analysis um, looking at what were the risk factors associated with failure. Um, at a year, and it turned out there were two significant risk factors for failure. One was randomized treatment, Um, and I mentioned at a year there was a significant difference between the two treatment groups, and so it turned out if you were randomized to the tube shunt group, you were at higher risk of failure. But the other significant predictor of failure was preoperative intraocular pressure, and in particular, if your pressure was lower, you were at higher risk of failure. But we found there was a treatment interaction between preoperative intraocular pressure and failure, and I think it's easier to illustrate that kind of graphically, um, kind of subdividing the population into different subgroups based on preoperative intraocular pressure. But if you do that, you'll you'll see that the failure rate of tube shunt surgery is much higher in among patients that have a low preoperative intraocular pressure. And as you progressively increase preoperative intraocular pressure, also progressively the rate of failure goes down. So um, actually among patients that have pressures above 25, there is actually a lower failure rate in the tube group than the trabeculagomy group. And among patients with pressures below 21, there was a much higher failure, failure rate in the tube group than the trabecoactomin group. Now it turned out there were kind of more patients kind of with lower levels of intraocular pressure, certainly in PTVT, compared to TVT, and that might have had some kind of influence to the results actually uh, of the study. So it's interesting to look at the effect or the influence of preoperative intraocular pressure on failure rates, which seems to be important in tube shunt surgery. It was less important in the trabeculectomy arm of the study. Uh, preoperative pressure did not have as much of an impact or influence on surgical success rates in, in, in TBT. In, in terms in of
0: TVT. other uh, things that would have been considered complications, when along the course of those studies was the hypertensive phase uh, brought up? And,
1: Yeah, hypertensive phase is pretty common after tube shunt surgery, and that actually can be, um, it's oftentimes called an encapsulated blood phase, and we see encapsulated blood phases after trabeculectomy as well. And um, both are treated in a similar fashion, which is just kind of reducing uh, aqueous production and try to ride through it. Um, You know, we reported the rate of encapsulated blebs for both trabeculectomy and tube shut surgery. But you and I know that's a little bit of a subjective kind of diagnosis. Um, um, And that's one of the problems actually with with TVT and PTVT or limitation is that you know it's hard to define certain complications and that's I think that's definitely one of them. you know, um, I guess it's, you know, easy to define hyphema, but it's actually difficult to quantitate. So that's the other thing. So definitions and quantification of complications. So choroidal effusion can be, you know, little fluid in in, in the periphery that you would only see with a dilated exam, or it can be, you know, kissing choroidals that, in some cases, you need to intervene and actually drain them. So that was, again, why we came up with this definition of serious complications. We felt that the ones where you actually had to go back to the operating room to manage the complication, those would be more significant. Um, and those that produce vision loss. As far as you know, encapsulated blebs, whether they be with traps or tubes, uh, if you could treat that medically and ride it out, um, Great. If you couldn't, and you had to reoperate, or your pressure stayed high, that could result in in failure, uh, according to predetermined uh, success
0: and failure criteria. Any other studies we should touch upon?
1: Oh, there's lots of them. I, there may be limitations in time, but you, you'd ask about the ABC and AVB study. These are also two studies that are probably. Um, easily discussed together because of similarities in design the Ahmed Bervault comparison study and Ahmed versus Behrveld study both uh, enrolled patients that um, had refractory glaucoma and were going to have tube shunt surgery but randomized them to an Ahmed glaucoma valve the model FP7 or 350 Bervault implant both of those studies showed that the Ahmed produced better pressure, pressure reduction immediately after surgery, um, but with longer follow-up, the Behrvelt um, was more effective in lowering intraocular pressure with less uh, adjunctive medical therapy. Um, so efficacy data in both those studies seem to favor the Behrvelt implant But the safety data in both studies seem to favor the AMED implant. That's really
0: interesting. And in the end, the the data from both the studies got pooled together.
1: Correct. At least for for, uh, treatment outcome with regards to success and failure, the complication data has not been pooled together yet, although we have that. And we're actually working towards a pooled analysis of complications. Of ABC and AVB, but you're right, the pooled uh, survival analysis was uh, published and showed that there was a significantly higher failure rate with the Ahmed implant compared with the Bare Belt implant in that pooled analysis.
0: It's hard with any of these studies to have enough in common with the study designs that you've actually pooled data. Yeah, so yeah. That's you know, quite uh,
1: the other example is Oates. And doctor hypertension treatment study and the European glaucoma prevention study they had kind of they were similar enough that they could pool the and today it really allowed one study to validate the other and I think similarly the ABC, ABB, and ABB and ABC study showed remarkably similar results um, and allowed one study to validate the other.
0: So it's it's still sort of a you might say a draw Terms of the, which implant to use, yeah. part of maybe what the surgeon's most comfortable with.
1: That, I think that's or, I think that's a factor. You know, some maybe clinical applications that you could extract from that study. Um, I think in patients that have markedly elevated intraocular pressure, where you need to reliably get it down immediately, I favor the Ahmed implant. Um, but people with advanced glaucoma. Those that are poorly tolerant to medical therapy, I think of Baervolt is better because of the greater pressure reduction and less need for adjunctive medical therapy. Certainly in patients where you're worried about hypotony-related complications, like uveitic glaucoma, eyes that have had prior cyclodestructive procedures, I think an Ahmed implant is a, a better implant to choose in those, those circumstances. So, so, those are some of the take home lessons from the study, I think.
0: Now, just to go off on a tangent, what about uh, use of anti metabolites and tube shunts?
1: Yeah, there's actually been a couple of randomized clinical trials uh, evaluating that, uh, one by Lou Cantor and one by Vital Costa, neither of which showed any benefit of intraoperative mitomycin C. Um, compared with kind of BSS. Uh, and that was an intraoperative administration in the area of the end plate, trying to create a thinner capsule over the end plate, since that's the day major determinant of kind of um, final pressures, uh, because that's where the resistance I- occurs. Right.
0: I don't even remember. Peter Netlin had a study more than a decade ago as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He compared it to a saline sponge compared mm-hmm. to an acumetabalite sponge, and there was no difference.
1: So there's an ongoing study right now that Ying Han is uh, running. Uh, Ying is a faculty member at UCSF, but I think the study is being conducted uh, mainly in China, but it involves a intraoperative application of mitomycin C and postoperative mitomycin C injections. So it'll be interesting. I think that study is ongoing and, you know, we're always interested in kind of longer term data and all, so it'd be interesting to see um, if intraoperative and postoperative might be beneficial um, in improving the success of, you know, tube chain surgery and hopefully not increasing the complications either, that's the consideration, you know, you certainly don't want to create problems with exposures of implants and there is potential with you know, antifibrotic administration and where there's plastic, it could could potentially have some adverse effects too.
0: It's probably also providing extra work for residents and fellows to give these injections. Uh, Yeah, 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 so.
1: Yeah, I guess that's great. Thanks, uh, Thanks for
0: talking today.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Talking About Glaucoma is a podcast of indeterminate frequency and duration. It's available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and many other podcast services. Please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to it, and tell your friends about it so that it can reach more listeners and encourage me to continue to produce new episodes. Follow West Coast Glaucoma on Instagram and Talking About Glaucoma on Facebook, Facebook, Drop me a line at podcast at iguy.org, that's podcast at iguy.org, with your show ideas or questions you would like to have answered on future episodes. Keep informed to prevent needless loss of vision from glaucoma. See you next time on Talking About Glaucoma.